1: And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. You may be seated. Thank you. As you're seated, let me pray for us. Um, Lord, the season of Advent is upon us, as we've already sung and we've already prayed and we are now hearing read in the text the celebration of the birth of Jesus and the, the preparation of our celebration of the birth of Jesus. And we just ask you, Lord, that you would stir within us that longing for you. That, God, we would take our eyes off of all the distractions around us, all the things happening in life and the world, that we might just focus them upon you. And that in focusing them on you, God, that that we might live lives that would glorify you in every way. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Christ is coming, and Christ has come, and Christ is going to come again. This is the message of Advent. Uh, Advent is a four-week season in the church calendar that we walk through on an annual basis, prepares us for Christmas where we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And so during Advent, we look back at the first arrival. That's what Advent means, arrival or coming. We look back at the first arrival of Jesus in his miraculous birth, and then we look forward to the promised second arrival of Jesus when he returns in power and glory. And and during the season of Advent, this is when we take hold, and, and I really think feel. Sometimes we become painfully aware of how we feel, that we're living in the messiness of the in between of those two Advent's. The arrival of Jesus, who came to save, and the full realization of that at the end of the age when he returns. We dwell in the tension in the in between time. An Advent is then God's annual stubborn reminder that the world is not as it should be. But it's also a reminder that things are not yet what they are promised to one day be. And so we we live in the tension of those two things. Advent does prepare us. It is preparatory in that sense. It readies us to receive the fullness of Christmas as we celebrate the birth of the incarnation of Jesus on December 25th each year. So over the next four weeks, this is what we're going to do in our Advent series. We're going to walk through Luke chapter 2, part of it. We're going to look today, as you've already heard read, at the story of Jesus' birth. Next week, we're going to look at responses that we have to Jesus' birth. And then in weeks three and four, we're going to look at a man and then a woman who in the text are people who had been waiting for Jesus' birth. We're going to allow this season to prepare us to celebrate Christmas rightly. We'll conclude Advent then together with three candlelight services, as you already heard, on Christmas Eve. So as we begin this season of Advent in Luke's gospel, I just want to show you how I believe the birth of Jesus gives us confidence that, number one, God is in control, and number two, God can be trusted. The birth of Jesus gives us confidence that God is in control God can be trusted. This is what we're going to look at today. Look at the passage with me one more time, verses 1 to 3. Look at this. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. See, the story of Jesus' birth is not a once upon a time story. It is a in those days story. In those days, in that part of the world, in the part of the world that Mary and Joseph were in, they were ruled by the Roman Empire that was being led by a guy named Caesar Augustus. Basically, when you are one of the occupied territories of the Roman Empire and Caesar Augustus said, jump, your response was, how high? Because if you did not say how high, then the Roman army would come in and crush you. So when they say, everybody, go get registered in your hometown, people start to move along. They talk about that season of time, the great peace of the Roman Empire. It, there was a great peace in the Roman Empire. It was just peace that came militarily. It was peace that came by the sword. If you stepped out of line, you got knocked back in militarily. So when everybody says, when they say, go get registered in your Place of origin, your hometown, your ancestral home. Everybody goes. Verse 4 says And Joseph went up from Galilee to, or from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And Mary and Joseph leave the town of Nazareth in the region of Galilee, and they travel to Bethlehem in the region of Judea. Because that's Joseph's ancestral home. And that's where you had to go to get registered. And you ask the question, why did they have to go get registered? Well, because they understood, just like my late grandfather, that if they don't know who you are and they don't know where you live, they can't tax you. This is a power play by the Roman overlords to register all of the subjects in their occupied territories to then withdraw from them, take from them a tax. You've got to understand it. You actually have to feel this with me. It would have seemed like every little bit of your life is being controlled and micromanaged by the Roman Empire. In a life that is full of daily reminders and even impositions, this is just another reminder that Caesar is Lord. It's another reminder that they are subjects of an occupying power, that they live in occupied territory, that they are not free, that their life is not their own, that they are, yes, free to worship God, but that functionally it is Caesar Augustus who rules the world. You've got to feel that. So we live here. It's free. You've got to imagine what it feels like when you believe that there's another empire micromanaging your every move. The phrase of the day throughout the whole of the Roman Empire was, Caesar is Lord. There was some divinity ascribed to Caesar. He was at times called the Son of God. He was at times said to rule all the earth. He was at times said to be the savior of the whole world.
0: Caesar is Lord.
1: Feel that. You need to feel that in the text. Now, Joseph and Mary were poor, which meant they likely made the 140, 150 kilometer trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem on foot. And the crazy thing is, Mary is basically full time at this point, her full term at this point. So once they get there, she has the baby. Verse 6, while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, if you're like me and you didn't grow up in the church and the Bible's brand new to you, these two verses may be like the entirety of your understanding of Christianity. Right? You're like, Christianity, yes, Jesus born in a manger, no room in the inn. That's what I understood growing up. I understood growing up that Christianity was about Christmas, had something to do with it. If I ignored it, it didn't impose anything on me, but I still got presents. That was my understanding of Christmas. I learned a lot of what I learned about Christianity as a child from the nativity sets that I would see. Little weird baby Jesuses laying in little weird mangers that somebody made. Doll Jesuses are terrifying 100% of the time. I learned a lot of what I learned about Christianity from that. The other, I, I did go to church once when I was about 10 with a friend and um, went in. They had an open mic. It was one of those churches. And um, An older woman came up to the front and then she just took over and she uh, just started to publicly rebuke this guy sitting at the back next to his wife and she just laid into him. And it was my first time ever in church. I thought, this is wild. And, and it just went on, and, and nobody stopped her. So maybe she might have been onto something, but it was awkward either way. So, so in, in many senses in my childhood, the, the little nativity set was way more helpful than my one time going and gathering with God's people. <laughs> What's happening in the text? Luke is narrating the historicity of Jesus' birth, and he is setting it within the context of what is happening in the Roman Empire under the rule of Caesar Augustus. And then he's setting it in the context of what's going on in the Roman province of Syria, which is being governed by Quirinius. And then he is taking it a little bit narrower to what's going on in the region of Judea. And then he takes it a little bit narrower, and he goes down right to the focused point of what's going on in Bethlehem, where Jesus Christ is born. The story of Jesus' birth is not a once-upon-a-time story, The story of Jesus' birth is an in-those-days story. See, 735 years before Jesus' birth, where he was born in the town of Bethlehem, in the region of Judea, in the Roman province of Syria, in the vast Roman Empire under the rule of Caesar Augustus, 735 years before that, Mary had to walk about 150 kilometers so that she could go and get registered for taxation and census. 735 years before all of that happened, God spoke through his prophet Micah. Chapter 5, verse 2. It says, You, O Bethlehem Ephrata, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. This is saying 735 years before Caesar Augustus issued the decree that Joseph and Mary had to travel from Nazareth in Galilee down to Bethlehem in Judea so they could get registered and be taxed. 735 years before that, God spoke through the prophet Micah that a new and great shepherd was going to come, that a new king of Israel would come, that one would come who would rule to the ends of the earth. That one would come who would become their peace. And that that one was going to be born in little old Bethlehem. 735 years before Caesar was called Lord. So Christ said, let me ask you the question, who's really in control? Is it Caesar who made them uproot, travel, In the final trimester of pregnancy? Is it the governor who registered them so that he could rightly exact the tax from them? Or is it God who spoke 735 years earlier with great accuracy through his prophet Micah that the Savior would come and be born in little old Bethlehem? Who's in control? See, Joseph and Mary and all the people of Israel lived under this oppressive rule of the Roman Empire, yet when we read this text, just these few verses, it seems as though perhaps Caesar is not Lord. It seems. This is a story of what we would call God's providence. Providence is the way that God upholds his creation in an ordered existence. The doctrine of God's providence Guides, says that God guides and governs all things. Providence directs everything to its appointed goal. So, so, in God's providence, He is directing everything to His appointed goal for His glory. That's what providence teaches us. And like 355, 300, yeah, 350, 375 years ago, there was a guy named John Flavel. And, and he wrote something. He said, God's providence can only be read backwards. And I think he's right, and I think that's good. I think that's helpful. You can't always see what God is doing in the present moment. But when you allow some time and space between the circumstances that you're you're going through, what you're fighting through, what you're battling through right now, and what happens is when you look back on that, you can see where God was at. You can't understand it right now. We walk by faith. But it's when you look back on it, like Flavel said. When you look back, you can read God's providence. You know what he's doing. You can identify where he showed up. But but let me say this about Joseph, okay? There's no way at this moment in history that Joseph thought it was a great idea for him to be dragging his very pregnant and mysteriously pregnant wife 150 kilometers on foot down to Bethlehem to visit his family. No way he thinks that's a great idea in the moment but God knew exactly what he's doing because God's in control. In his book, The Mystery of Providence, John Flavel said, and there's a great quote It's going to come up on the screen behind me. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> sirs, let me tell you, there is not such a pleasant history for you to read in all the world as the history of your own lives. If you would but sit down and record from the beginning until now what God has been to you, done for you. What signaled manifestations and outbreakings of his mercy, faithfulness, and love there have been in all the conditions that you passed through. If your hearts do not melt before you've gone halfway through that history, they are hard hearts indeed. What he's saying is, take stock of what God's already done in your life. Have you noted it? Do you remember? This is why the Bible tells us so often to remember. What God has done. Don't forget what God has done because as soon as you forget what God has done for you in the past, you're going to start to wonder if you can trust him in the present or if he's really in control of the future. Don't forget. It is 100% accurate that Joseph and Mary were under the domineering control of a foreign occupier who thought he was God and that they were forced to make a trip that he had decreed. It's 100% accurate that that is true. But I also want you to see that it is a greater truth and it is also 100% accurate to say that they were always under the divine care of a God who was bringing about his salvation through their difficult circumstances. They're both simultaneously true. As my wise wife once told me, everything that happens in life is either purposed or allowed by God to make us more like him. And you might wonder why you feel like you're on a 150 kilometer death march into the certainty of oppression and taxation. But Christ City, don't lose heart. God's in control. God might just be on the verge of doing something wonderful in your life that you will not understand until later, years down the road, you look back on it. In the chaos of the world, just never forget that He's in control. The birth of Jesus gives us the confidence number one, that God is in control, and number two, that God can be trusted. God can be trusted. He is in control, and he can be trusted. Look at verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Hey, if, if the first three verses that we just looked at talking about Augustus and Quirinius and the registration. If the first three verses of the text set the historicity of the birth of Jesus within the geopolitical stuff that's going on in that region of the world, then I want you to notice that verses 4 and 5 locate the birth of Jesus within the prophetic promises of the Old Testament. One is giving you a historical account of when and where it happened and all the circumstances around it. Verses 4 and 5 are setting it within the historic promises that God made in the Old Testament, the prophetic promises that he uttered. We've already looked at the fact that Micah prophesied 735 years before Jesus, that Jesus was gonna be born in Bethlehem. But this is also telling us that Jesus was born into the line of King David. First chapter of, of Luke's gospel tells us the story of the angel Gabriel coming and speaking to Mary, saying, you've found favor with God. Verse 31 says in Luke... Chapter one, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. In the fact that Jesus would be born into the line of David Receive the throne of David as the eternal Savior King who was promised. That is the fulfillment of the promise of God through Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7, 1,000 years before Jesus was born. That same promise that Jesus is going to come in the line of David, Psalm 89, the psalmist talks about this, Psalm 89, about 975 years before the birth of Jesus. The fact that Jesus was going to be born in the line of King David, that he was going to inherit the throne of King David about 720 years before Jesus, Isaiah chapter 9. God promised through Micah that he'd be born in Bethlehem. God promised through 2 Samuel 7, Psalm 89, Isaiah 9, a whole bunch of other places. That Jesus is going to be born in the house and lineage of David. Okay, there are at least 10 more super easy Old Testament prophecies that are fulfilled here in the birth of Jesus. The promises that he made that are fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. There's at least 10 more, but I did a couple of lists a few weeks ago, and so I'm listed out. I've met my quota for the year. Okay, my point though remains the same the birth of Jesus gives us the confidence that God can be trusted. For thousands of years, God has been saying the same thing, and it comes to pass in tremendously unique ways in the birth of Jesus. God makes good on all of his promises, even when we don't understand what he's doing, even when in the midst of it we can't comprehend, when we question why he has us headed this direction when it seems as though the promise is here. There's all kinds of things like that. Trust him. Imagine you're Joseph for a second. You've just traveled 150 kilometers from Nazareth and Galilee down to Bethlehem in Judea. Probably haven't seen your family in quite a long time because 150 kilometers by land is a fairly lengthy trip. You've got your wife-to-be alongside you. She's mysteriously pregnant. You're not the dad. You've not consummated the marriage yet. She is your betrothed. Right? You get down to dinner with your family and Uncle Larry just looks at you like, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) mm-hmm. Hey, you thought your family gatherings were interesting.
0: Imagine how that felt. You
1: can trust God Because he is who he says he is. You can trust God to be who he says he is and to do what he's promised to do because he has an entirely unblemished record of faithfulness. He is faithful. It's how you define his nature and character. He is faithful. He is the faithful one. You can trust him even when you don't understand what's going on. Jerry Bridges said, God's plan and his ways of working out his plan are frequently beyond our ability to fathom and understand. We must learn to trust when we don't understand. Birth of Jesus gives us confidence that God is in control and that God can be trusted. But what if you are having a hard time believing that right now? What if you've heard everything I've just said about trusting God, and for you today, that does not seem like good news. It seems like a very handsome preacher. (laughs) Just seems like a preacher piling on to the pain that you came in with. The weight of that doubt that you feel. I go, you can trust that God is in control. Look at this, Jesus' birth shows us that. You can trust that God's going to make good on all of his promises. Because look, look at the promises that he's making good on at the birth of Jesus. God's in control. You can trust him. And for you, that feels like sandbags placed on your shoulders when you're trying to swim. I'm already drowning and I show up on a Sunday, the first Sunday of Advent, and I get told that he's in control and I can trust him. And everyone around me seems to think that's awesome but I'm just sitting here behind my mask going, "Uh uh-uh. It's difficult. I've been a Christian for 20 years now, and over that time, I've been studying God, studying God's Word, trying to get to know Him, to walk with Him, to figure out how He leads me and what He's doing in my life and in the life of people close to me. Spent the last 20 years studying God. I've also spent the last 20 years studying Christians. The people who I know God has called me to lead. Let me tell you something odd about Christians. Christians are often afraid to talk about their doubts. Christians are often afraid to talk about the times when they're struggling to believe that God is in control and that God can be trusted. And let me say this. Hiding that stuff does not serve you, and it doesn't serve anyone near to you. Hiding your doubts does not stop you or anyone else from doubting. Suppressing your doubts communicates with unintended consequence that doubt is something that you should be ashamed about. So you hide it. You stuff it back down. You show up on a Sunday, you lift your hands, and you go, "I just love it. God's in control, and I can trust him." And inside you're going like, "But I'm not sure I'm going to make it out this front door."."
0: Alistair, Ma-
1: uh, Alistair McGrath, he said, "We need to learn to be relaxed about doubt. Doubt is like an attention-seeking child. The more attention you pay to it, the more attention it demands. By worrying about your doubts, you get locked into a vicious cycle of uncertainty. We can admit that we walk by faith, not by certainty. That's okay to admit. I think the birth of Jesus gives us confidence that God is in control and that God can be trusted. And I want you to live at an all-time high in your faith life. But I want to tell you why doubt doesn't freak me out. Doubt is not the same as unbelief. Doubt is not the same as unbelief. Determined unbelief is the decision to live your life as if there is no God. It's a deliberate decision to reject Jesus Christ and all he stands for. That's unbelief. Doubt's different. Doubt arises within the context of faith. It's a longing to be certain of the things that you trust in by faith. Namely, it's a longing to be certain that God is in control and that God can be trusted. Doubts arise within the context of faith, not apart from the context of faith. Apart from the context of faith is unbelief. Doubt might come in the midst of a crisis of faith for you, but unbelief is a close-minded certainty against faith itself. Doubt and unbelief are different. Having doubts and questions and critiques of your faith is not a sign that you've lost your faith. A.J. Swoboda is a friend of mine. He said even the New Testament recognizes the difference between a Judas Iscariot and a Peter, both of whom turned their back on Jesus. The difference? One came back. The other gave up. There's a fundamental difference between doubt and unbelief in Scripture. Peter's doubt wasn't the end of his faith. Why should it be ours? Peter's crisis of faith eventually matured into an even deeper longing and love for Christ. Here's the mystery to struggle with one's faith is often the surest sign we actually have one. Not afraid of doubt, that's the wrestling of your faith at work in you, as you draw nearer and nearer to God. Here in Luke 2, it says, when Jesus was born, Mary wrapped him in strips of cloth, laid him in a manger. But in Luke 23, after the crucifixion and death of Jesus, they took him down from the cross, and they wrapped him in linen cloths, and they laid him in a tomb. Let me tell you why I think the birth of Jesus gives us confidence that God is in control and that the birth of Jesus gives us confidence that we can trust God. Mary wrapped him in linen cloths and laid him in a manger. His disciples wrapped him in linen cloth and laid him in a tomb.
0: But hear me, Christ, City, because if you take hold of what I'm about to share
1: with you, it will transform your life. In the same way that he grew out of the cloth he was wrapped in after his birth, he grew out of the cloth he was wrapped in after his death. Luke chapter 24, verse 1, I'm just going to read it to you. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. Mary took Jesus after his birth, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger. After Jesus Christ died for our sin upon the cross of Calvary, his body was taken down and wrapped in a linen cloth and he was laid in a tomb. The swaddling cloths and the manger when he was a baby could not hold him, and neither could death or the grave. Jesus is Lord,
0: Caesar is not. Jesus Christ, born, laid in a manger,
1: lived, crucified, dead, buried, Jesus Christ is risen. Jesus is Lord, Caesar's not.
0: God is in control and you can trust him.